Welcome to Speedy Law. Speedy's his name, trial law's his game. True stories of a small town criminal defense attorney named Speedy. Thank you for tuning in. Here's Speedy. George W. Speedy, coming to you from the law offices of Speedy Tanner and Atkinson, Camden, South Carolina. Everybody calls me Speedy. Uh, I answer to it. I like it. Um, you know, uh, I've told you some stories previously about my experiences, and I, they're all very factual. They're factual to the extent that I can. I don't make anything up. Um, I, I try to make sure that everything I tell you is uh, as I remember it, but we also stay away from any disclosures of confidential information. That's important, and you hear that in our uh, in our broadcast when we just have the disclaimer. But uh, sometimes we um, get close, but we certainly try hard not to identify anybody that doesn't want to be identified. We do, if we do identify somebody, we have their permission, and sometimes they they want to. It's with pride. So that's the that's the approach we're taking. We just hope you're enjoying what we're doing here in the offices of Speedy Tanner and Atkinson, Camden, South Carolina. I want to tell you about chain gangs. Uh, Chain gangs don't really exist anymore in South Carolina, but back in the day, chain chain gangs were a pretty common occurrence. Now, chain gangs, what what would occur is that if you had a relatively minor offense, usually something like a driving under the influence or or maybe a, a, a assault and battery or something that you've been incarcerated for for some short period of time, then they would uh, send you to the chain gang. Chain gangs, they've been, they've been uh, shown on movies uh, what they were like. Our, our particular chain gang was uh, a place located on Flat Rock Road, which is just outside of Camden. It was um, usually run by a, a, a local sheriff's department. Usually sheriff's department people would, would uh, manage it, take sure, make sure it was safe, uh, make sure that the people did what they did. And during the day, they would go out and work. They'd work along the roads. They might work on the public buildings. And they just would earn their way out of jail. If they behaved well, they would get credit for the work they did get out earlier. So a lot of people like to go to the chain gangs. A lot of the other communities had them in, in, where I practiced law, too. Uh, Lancaster County had them. Chester County had them. And one day I got a call from a family from Chester County when their rather elderly father, who was the night watchman at the chain gang, was arrested. He was arrested uh, for about 15 counts of, um, of uh, not performing his duty. It was a violation of his public office, and he was arrested for those. The exact term doesn't come to me right now, but he was arrested for, not, for neglecting the duties. And th- the facts were kind of like this, that... Uh, Several of the chain gang members were found at a local establishment, a little bar in Lancaster, and they uh, were arrested for violating or being escaped, basically. And they all decided that they'd turn my client in as as allowing them to do it, indicating that about five or six of them indicated that they they had um, paid my client to be be released, and that he would they would work a deal with him, they'd pay him so much money, and he would let him go out to the community. And there's about four or five of them that were 
had made statements that I could see and I was concerned about it. So that was the factual basis I was presented with him. He was an elderly fellow. He was probably, when I say elderly, he was younger than me, but he was in his late 60s and he was trying to earn some money after his retirement. He worked in the Springs Industries for the longest time and the mills had retired recently. Had a very nice family. Uh, I remember there were two or three young young men, boys, younger than him, obviously, that uh, came with him, and they all seemed to be a very tight-knit family. I describe him as a, a thin kind of guy, kind of bashful, kind of kind of shy. His, uh, his hair was black and very black hair. I remember that. I was amazed. I'm not sure whether he was dying or it was just the nature, but it seemed like all the boys had dark uh, black hair. He uh, was quiet and reserved. He didn't really say much. You had to kind of force him to, to talk to you. So I, I spent a lot of time trying to trying to get him to tell me what really was going on. And his, his always his answer was, I didn't do anything wrong, Mr. Street. I didn't do anything wrong. Now, sure, I would take naps. I would sleep, but that was permitted. He said, it wasn't, a, it wasn't that you couldn't do those kinds of things. He said, but I never let anybody out. I never accepted any money. That just is not in my nature. Didn't look good for us. Uh, the, the, back then, the cases would usually come up within about six months of being uh, arrested. We usually had to wait for the, the grand jury indictment. What happened then is that you had the right to a preliminary hearing. What that meant was that uh, before they could indict you, you had the right to the preliminary hearing. If you had the, didn't have the preliminary hearing, then they couldn't indict you. That's changed in recent laws, but frequently back in those days, if, if our client uh, hadn't had a preliminary hearing at the first roster meetings, we would just announce that he hadn't had a preliminary hearing, therefore they couldn't go forward. But in this case, we had to have our little preliminary hearing, and again, we went to the preliminary hearing. All they have to prove is that there's probable cause. So the police officer just read statements basically saying that these fellows had owned up to the fact that they were paying off my client to be released on, on, uh, in the evening so they could go have some fun, see their girlfriends, drink some beer. That's basically what they did. Usually it was in the late hours after midnight, and usually they were back by 4 o'clock in the morning, they said. That was the factual situation. He, uh, the judge, of course, found that there was probable cause, and there was no question that was going to happen. There was, there was evidence based on the statements of the individuals that, that, that he, if in fact you believed them, that he in fact did commit a crime and that, he, uh, that it was a crime that he, what he, that what he did. Again, after the preliminary hearing, I talked to him long and hard. I said, you know, if we go to the trial in this matter, you're going to get probably five years on each count. You could get consecutive but any time at your age is, is just a just a going to be a immense burden on your health, and perhaps you perhaps you couldn't live through it. And he understood that, and he would just continue to tell me, "I just did not do it. I am not guilty. I did not do it." I was left with a pretty pretty difficult situation. We were announced. It was announced, I guess, a couple of weeks ahead of time that we we're going to have. Uh, we were next on the trial docket for a trial set up that we would be the first one, which made it easier for us because then we could be ready on Monday morning when the jury came in, and um, we got prepared. We started preparing. It was probably about 10 days before I, um, before the trial was to begin, and I got a, 
unusual letter from an individual in the CCI, Columbia. Now, CCI is short for Central Cor Correction uh, uh, Institute. Uh, it was a, an old archaic building at the time. It had been here for many, many years. I don't know how many years it had been, but it was, it was basically a tomb. It was a dungeon. It was not a nice place to be. A lot of people got sent there that were probably the uh, more serious offenses, such as murder, uh, such as uh, criminal sexual conduct. Those kind of folks were sent there, but they were given a chance to re rehab there to some extent. If they behaved themselves, they could earn themselves into a, to a lesser secure system. But it, it was a tough place to go to. But anyway, they said the, the letter basically said that he had some information concerning the case against my client and, uh, and the chain gang. Made an appointment. You had, had to make an appointment to go over. Went over and going into the CCI was, uh, was quite a experience. Generally, what you would do is you'd go to the you'd get get through the get through the main offices. They'd search you and things. They'd finally get you to the administrative office, and then they would have a <clears throat> a room for you down the hall. Well, that hall was about oh thirty feet wide, and when you got released to go to that room, you were amongst the prison population. It was incredible. You you were walking down from the administrative office, generally with nobody with you. Sometimes a guard would come with you, but they would let you walk from the administrative office to the to the, uh, the hearing room. I'm not the hearing room, the attorney room. Uh, and on this day, I walked in the room and I sat down with a fella, and he told me, he said, Mr. Speedy, he said, your guy's being railroaded. I said, what do you mean? He said, there's been a key in existence at that chain gang for a long time. He says it was there when I was there before I came to CCI. He said it was there when these, it was, it was a common knowledge. We used it all the time. These fellas just got caught. They tried to do too many, and he said they're lying. I said, well, there's a lot of lot lying going on. Then I said, there's four or five of them. He said, I'll tell you exactly where the key was kept, and he described exactly where they put it. Where, how they would retrieve it and how it was kept pretty much secret, usually with just a couple, but it obviously had gotten out of hand and, and that caused my client the problem because too many of them were out in the community and the word got out. And when they were caught, they obviously just copped the plea. I went back and rather than tell the solicitor my, my proposed uh, defense, I thought the better, better idea would be to... Uh, wait till they presented their case, let these fellows testify, and then at some point in time, spring the key. Um, in the meantime, I'd made arrangements to have this uh, this inmate brought up from Central Correction Institute in Columbia, and uh, that raised some eyebrows. The pros prosecution didn't understand why it was having brought up, but uh, in any event, uh, we began the trial. Uh, they put up their three or four or five witnesses, whatever they had. They put up some officers just to describe the, the, the apprehension of the folks, uh, the, what they said when they got caught. They didn't initially, what was probably to my advantage was they additionally, initially didn't make any kind of statements. The statements were made after they'd had a chance taken back to the chain gang, or actually they were taken back to the county jail. And while they were there, they had a chance to talk it over, I think, and they all came up with a plan to blame it all on, on my guy. They had plenty of time to do that. And 
they started then making statements after that period of time. It was perhaps uh, maybe a week or 10 days, two weeks later after they were arrested and taken in that these statements started coming out. So it gave some credibility to my, my case. So we, they put up their, their uh, uh, five witnesses of five or six, whatever there were, of uh, inmates who had said that they'd been released and allowed to go. And at the end of each one of them, I had asked him, I said, are you sure you didn't have a key? Are you sure there wasn't a key? I mean, just ask that question. Every one of them said no. But when I presented my client, they, uh, he got on the stand. Actually, we, they, they, they did their case. It was, it was pretty much uh, not a case where I could make a motion for a directed verdict because they had um, presented a, a solid case, basically, if you believed it. Well, my guy gets up, and he has absolutely uh, nothing to gain. Nothing, there was nothing that I could do for him. I couldn't promise him immunity. I couldn't promise him an early date out. I couldn't promise him anything at all. The thing he told me at, at, when I interviewed him, though, is he said that he was trying to straighten his life out. That this was gnawing at him, and he felt like there was an injustice. We presented him as our one and only witness. We didn't put anybody else on the stand. He got up, made a very impressive witness, and he basically said exactly what he told me in the room, that he, the reason he was doing it, that he wanted to straighten his life up and, and do what was right, and it wasn't right what was happening to my client at the time. So 15 indictments, I believe, altogether. When the jury came out, they had to read them one at a time. And, of course, my client was very apprehensive. I'm very apprehensive that one at a time we heard not guilty, 15 times. We finished that case very pleased, very happy, and with the comfort that there is people in this world who can straighten themselves out, can bring the truth out, and that's what happened on this day. This is George W. Speedy. Coming to you from the office of Speedy Tanner and Axman Camden, South Carolina. They call me Speedy. I answer to it, and I like it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Speedy Law. True stories of a small-town criminal defense attorney named Speedy. New episodes go live the second and fourth Tuesday of each month. Speedy Law is brought to you by Speedy Tanner and Atkinson, attorneys at law, and produced by Patty Rose PR Biz Marketing. We'll see you next time on Speedy Law. Speedy's his name. Trial Law's his game. As a lawyer, I feel an obligation to inform all listeners that all information that I disclose in these podcasts is either public information or it's not protected information. I've gotten it legally, in other words. I, uh, any names that I might use, I have the permission. If I don't have the permission, I don't use their names. And none of the descriptions, descriptions are designed for people to be embarrassed or identified. I try to be as fair as I can in my interpretation of all the situations that I've been involved in.